0: Today we're going to be looking at one of the chapters that's not my favorite chapter. (laughs) We're going to be looking at chapter 7. You might ask, well, why then did we read a passage from chapter 8? It's because we're going to look at the context of Romans 6 through 8 to be able to understand some passages in Romans chapter 7. I believe, and I believe you also would agree with me on this, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Amen? and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness. So I believe that God is going to teach us and speak to us through His Word today. And as we open the Word of God, I'm just going to ask you if you would indulge me in another word of prayer as we begin. Father in Heaven, today we just need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit to speak to our hearts. We need You not because we need a deeper theological understanding, but because we need a closer experience with You. We want that. We want to understand more how we can walk with you as a result of our time together. We ask for this miracle of divine understanding of spiritual minds in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's just get some idea of what I'm talking about here. If you look with me in Romans chapter 7, we're going to look at just a few verses halfway through the chapter, beginning in verse 14. Look with me there in Romans chapter 7. You're going to see why... Um, we have some of the challenges in Romans chapter 7 that, that we do. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Do you understand what saying? He's saying? He's talking the experience of every person about this time of year who has made New Year's resolutions to eat less right, to go on a diet. What I want to do is I can't do, and what I don't want to do it's what I do. Have you ever felt that way before? The problem is we're not here talking about some New Year's resolution. Paul, in context, is talking about God's law. Now, that's infinitely more important in spiritual terms, in eternal terms, than something that I simply want to do with my life. Isn't Are we agreed on that? He's talking about God's law, God's spiritual requirements, And um, skip down to verse, verse 18. "'For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, and the evil that I would not that I do.'" Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin which dwells in me. He's feeling conflicted here, and he's feeling torn between what he wants to do, and he knows he has good motives, he knows he has good intentions, but why can't he do what he wants to do? It's not as if he has a heart that is a contrary or averse to the things of God. He says, I then, verse 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now this is not exactly a glowing testimony of a Christian experience that Paul is giving here, is it? He's not saying... The Christian life is such a wonderful life. I'm so blessed to live for Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm in bondage. I'm in captivity. Whew, what are you talking about, Paul? What are you trying to say here? And there's some theologians that look at this passage and they say, Paul's talking about the Christian experience. This is what everyone is just bound to experience. Because, I mean, if Paul experienced that, then who, what hope do I have? to do any better than Paul. We're going to try to look at the context here and try to understand some of what Paul is saying here because I think by the time we come to the end of our study here this morning, you're going to agree with me that Jesus has something better than this to offer us. He has something better than this to offer us. And so we see this context We see this context of uh, Romans chapter 7. It's bound, the two bookends are Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8. So we're going to be looking here briefly at Romans chapter 6. We've already looked some at that passage, but we're going to review a little bit today. Now let's just remind ourselves that the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired. (laughs) God didn't, or the, the prophets did not write, okay, chapter 6. Anybody write letters like that? Uh, where you, you know, in the middle of your email you say, okay, now this is the next chapter. No, we don't write that way and neither did Paul. In fact, it was the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Stephen Langton, who uh, gave the divisions to the Bible that are still used today and that was in the early 13th century that the Bible was divided into chapters. And verses came somewhat later, Robert Stevens in his 1551 edition of the Bible um, gave a Greek a number uh, of his Greek Bible, gave a numbering of the verses, which is mostly still followed in our English Bibles today. So when we look back in Romans, Romans chapter 6, we're not really doing anything that's violent to the text. We're looking at the context of chapter 7 itself. Notice with me there's a couple of themes that we find in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, if we look back, you remember the first part of the chapter. It talks about the, uh, the experience of death and burial, and he uses baptism as an as a, as a, uh, object lesson of the old man, our old person, whatever that is, dying and being buried, just like Jesus died and was buried, and just like Jesus rose again and came out of the grave, we also are resurrected by the same power of the same Spirit, which is a miracle, amen? Amen. To walk in newness of life. That's the first part of Romans chapter 6. Look at me a few verses later. Verse 14. Notice with me, Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. Grace. Now there's some people who read that and they stop reading right there and they say, see... We no longer have to keep the law. We don't have to worry about sin. We can sin as much as we, can, as we want. As long as we have grace to cover us, we're okay. That's the, that's the thinking of some. But what does Paul say? Immediately, he, it's as if he premeditated that some would have this reaction when they read verse 14. And he says in verse 15, What then, shall we sin? Because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. You see, what Paul's trying to say is not that the law is no longer relevant for the Christian. We're going to talk more about how it's relevant. He's not trying to say that the law is not relevant. What he's saying, the law for the Christian is no longer condemning us. We're no longer condemned by that law uh, because of the grace of Jesus. Skip down to verse 20. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit... Had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. The wages of sin is death. He says this even more plainly. The fruit of sin is death. That's what Paul talks about. Now, we're going to keep that in mind because he brings us back to this thought. He ties this verse in with his discussion in Romans chapter 7. Um, our other context we could find we could border this book in this by reading Romans chapter eight and verse one but we already read that for a scripture so we'll come to that here in just a little while first of all let's look at the law and how it's used in Romans chapter seven beginning with verse one know you not brethren For I speak to those who know the law, how the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. And then he gives an object lesson, an illustration in verses 2 through 4. For the woman which has an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. If the husband is dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she's married to another man, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? He's not trying to change the subject. He's trying to use an illustration. This is something that they knew. They understood the Jewish law. They understood this. I speak to those who know the law, right? And he says, you know that if if a person makes a vow to be married to a person as long as they should live, then they're bound to that vow as long as they live. But if that spouse dies, they are no longer Under that covenant, right? They're free to be married to another person. You understand this. You understand this. And what is Paul bringing this up for? He's trying to help us understand this idea of our old man being dead. Remember, that's what we talked about in Romans 6. Our old man is crucified with Christ. It's dead and buried. We rise to walk in newness of life. When we were in the flesh, when we were doing the things of the flesh, when we were married, if you want to please, if you please, to our old man, we were bound to obey him. But if that old man is crucified, guess what? We're free to be married to another. And who is it that we are married to when that old man is crucified? we become married to none other than Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it a wonderful, intimate relationship that Jesus wants to have with us? But you can't serve two masters. You can't be married to the old man and still trying to serve Christ. And the problem that many Christians face is that they want to be married to Christ and get all of the good gifts that, that His love brings to them. They, they want to be following Christ. They want to be married, but they aren't willing to part ways with the old man. I mean, how many of you have ever been to a wedding where... <laughs> yes, you've been to a wedding. But where a vow read something like this, "...and forsaking all others except Mar- Mary Jane." I promise to be married to you, Sue, for the rest of my life. Have you ever heard a vow that went something like that? And forsaking all others except Jason and Greg. I promise to be married to you for the rest of my life. Is that what marriage is about? Obviously not. When we choose to be married, we forsake all others. Forsaking all others is where that phrase ends ends. And we are, we are going to be married to one person. That one person will be the, the focus of our attentions, our affections, our loyalty, our trust, our hearts. And the problem that many Christians have is they want to be married to Jesus, but they haven't yet understood, they haven't yet allowed the old man to die. Notice how he, he develops this theme in Romans chapter 7. Wherefore, my brethren, based upon what we just talked about, the law of marriage, you also have to become dead or are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that's Jesus, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Remember, in chapter 6, he says, being uh, uh, in before, while we were in the world, we had fruit that were the fruit to the end of death. Now, he says we need to bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our hearts, in our members, to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, what are you trying to say, Paul? You're trying to say that when we're in the flesh means when we have a corporal body, when we have physical being, that we cannot please God? In fact, that's, that's what he even says in, in Romans chapter 8 and verse, uh, verse 5 for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh where does it say verse 8 Romans chapter 8 and verse 8 so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God is that what he's trying to say here in Romans chapter 7 when we were in the flesh we're still in the flesh aren't we i mean still have hair follicles and fingernails and cuticles and all of these aches and pains that we get as we get older yes we're still in the flesh What he's talking about is when that old man was still alive, our carnal nature, that's what he's talking about. There's a contrast Paul begins to develop here between being in the flesh and being in the spirit, following our old man, our carnal nature, and following the things of God. And you'll see that contrast developed, especially strongly in chapter 8. But now, verse 6, we are delivered from the law. "...that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter." What is Paul trying to get to? How is he trying to explain this, this, this mystery, this, this struggle that he was, he was talking about in his own heart, where the law convicted him of what he should do, of what he was doing wrong, but he couldn't find any victory to do anything differently?" He's saying here that being delivered from the law, being, that being dead wherein we were held, we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul, you'll remember, had been called Saul. And Saul was a theologian of theologians in the Jewish nation. In fact, as a young man, he was looked at as a bright and rising star in the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, you'll remember, was a group of 70 men who were the spiritual leaders of Israel. They would have been the civil leaders as well, except Rome wouldn't allow them to. And so these were the respected, revered men of the nation. They knew the law of God backwards and forwards. In fact, they, it was a requirement for them to be a member of the Sanhedrin, that they would know the entire Jewish code of law by heart. Um, Paul was a very educated man. He had studied under the the feet at the feet of a, a renowned professor, Gamaliel. He was um, he was he was very smart, very intelligent, very bright student, and he was a, a wise man. Another interesting fact about the Sanhedrin: um, when they would try somebody, whether it be over some crime of of uh, of immorality or of, or of false teachings. When they would try something, it was against the rules of the Sanhedrin, the internal rules of the Sanhedrin, for them to have a translator to translate the uh, testimony of the witness or of the plaintiff in their trial. Um, now, the Jews were scattered all over, and so they came from many different backgrounds, but it was a requirement for the witness to be able to testify in their mother tongue, in their native language. That was so they could have the best attempt at communicating accurately, right? But the, the, the Sanhedrin did not allow for translators. A translator would introduce the, the opportunity for error in, in the translation. So it was a requirement that in the courts that the Sanhedrin held all translation had to be done by members of the Sanhedrin themselves. Not just one, but two members of the Sanhedrin had to be fluent in the language that the person was speaking the, as their mother tongue. And this is why, one of the reasons why when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I speak more languages or more tongues than you all, he wasn't just, he wasn't just boasting idly, he actually was extremely gifted linguistically, as most of the members of the Sanhedrin were. To be a part of the Sanhedrin, you had to speak multiple languages, even some very obscure languages, in order to be um, a fair body. And so Paul uses this um, um, illustration of, of, uh, the, of marriage, the marriage law, and then he goes on and he uses this illustration of being dead to the law. Remember his experience. His experience was that of making sure that he did everything the law said, right? Remember that? He was, a, he was a champion of the law. He made sure he did everything just right. We can read in his epistles, he talks about how he was circumcised on just the right day. He, he kept all the law rigidly. The Jew of the Jews is how he describes himself. But he found that keeping the law could not save him. Did you hear what I said? Keeping the law could not save him, at least not an outward keeping of the law, trying to, trying to do all the externals and, and keep all the obedient commandments, all those things. It couldn't save him. In fact, it left him just as empty as he had been before. It left him without the peace and the satisfaction that came from knowing his Savior personally. Notice with me, he goes on, verse seven, Romans chapter seven verse seven. What shall we say then? is the law sin is is the law bad is the law sin god forbid no i had not known sin but the law but by the law for i had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet And sin, it says, verse 8, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all matter of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. If I didn't understand what the law really meant, I felt pretty good. But when, when the law began speaking to my heart and when the law began showing me that I was really dirty, I was really guilty, he says, I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Have you ever thought everything was going well? Your day was going well, and then you passed a mirror. Ever had one of those rude awakenings? (laughs) Is the mirror bad because it shows you that you forgot to do something or forgot to, or your hair is all out of place? Is the mirror the fault? No, the mirror's not the fault, but the mirror is what revives that feeling of insecurity or remorse or regret or whatever it is in your heart and that's what Paul's saying the law's not the fault the law's not the problem the law, i was doing fine but then i came face to face with the law and i realized i'm a sinner even though i've been checking off all of the jewish do's and don'ts for all my life even though i've gone to the best places i've attended church i've gone all these done all these good things i came to the realization that i was Lost. I was a sinner because keeping the law can't change my condition any more than a mirror can make us clean. And the commandment, verse 10, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was Then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. We need to see our need, and that's why the law is of benefit for us. And then we come to that passage where Paul gives his testimony of this experience, wanting to do what was right, knowing what was right, being convicted of what was right, but finding himself powerless to do what was right. Let's just look at the law in Romans chapter 7. Let's just notice that we have the Decalogue quite clearly being referred to. He talks about thou shalt not covet, talking about the Ten Commandments. Um, and, but what he found from the Decalogue was simply that it pointed out his condition. It condemned him, showed that the fruits of his life were fruits unto death, not unto eternal life. And under this discussion of the Decalogue, we have a discussion of the law of sin and death. Notice with me in verse 20 and 21. He says, "For I, if I do, now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. You see this conflict that he's going back and forth? Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see, what does your Bible say? I see what? Another law. So he's talking about the commandments, which are good. They pointed out my evil, which isn't good. It's not not comfortable. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. In Romans chapter 7, Paul speaks of the Ten Commandment law as pointing out his guilt, condemning him. He speaks of another law that he refers to as the law of sin and death. And that is that I, Paul, can't stop myself from sinning. You could call it the law of our carnal natures. You could call it the law of the flesh. Paul refers to it as a law that's present in my members' bringing me into captivity to the law of sin and death. And therefore, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? I'm thankful that he doesn't leave that question unanswered because he comes in chapter 8 with some good news. First, in verse 25, he says, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 8, chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Can anyone say amen to that verse? Are you thankful that today you and I have the privilege? This is abundantly clear. And no matter how obscure some of the passages in Romans 7 may be, one thing's very clear. Jesus releases us from the condemnation of sin. That is to say that before God and the watching universe, we can stand in the blood of Jesus today without condemnation, free from the condemnation of sin and the law as if we had never sinned. Isn't that good news? I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Notice with me, you can't can't divorce these verses from chapters 6 and 7. He's talking about this experience of of dying and being married, being in Christ is a close, intimate relationship with Him. The works of the flesh being dead and the works of the Spirit being alive through the power that raised Jesus from the dead. We also walk in newness of life. All of this is being encapsulated in these first few verses of chapter 8, and he says in verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Here's a new law. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now let me ask you a question. Can you be in captivity to the law of sin and also free from the law of sin at the same time? No. Jesus, Jesus' power makes us free from the law of sin and death. And that, my friends, is good news. The law of the freedom of life in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pro- propose to you, you notice how I've, how I've arranged this on the slide here. When we talk about these four laws, I guess we could say here, In Romans chapter 7. We have the law of marriage. We have the Decalogue, which points out our sins and can't save us. But notice here, these are sort of subsets of the Decalogue. I'm going to propose to you that when we are trying to save ourselves, when we are by the works of our flesh, attempting to obey and be good enough by ourselves, the Ten Commandments is a law of tyranny. It convicts us and condemns us. It doesn't help us at all. And like Paul convicted but not converted, convicted but not surrendered. We are in, in bondage to this law, which we know we want to do better, we know we want to do something different, but we can't. But that same law can be implanted into our hearts and becomes the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Hold with me. Let's look and see how the Bible teaches this. What we do know we can say some things very clearly from Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. We can say very clearly that our natural heart is not inclined to the things of God. you agree with me? Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 says it, because the carnal mind, the flesh, is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. We also know that Jesus says of my own I, self, I can do nothing. And if Jesus could do nothing by himself, then how much can we do in keeping the law? Nothing. I don't think that any of us would, would, um, would try to say that we can do more than Jesus in our own strength. And there's something else that I want us to be very, very, very clear about. In fact, I want you to turn with me there in Romans chapter, I mean, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I want you to, to see this promise with me together today. I want you to understand that I'm not suggesting that because we struggle, therefore we are not Christians. Because we struggle or even because we fall, therefore we are forsaken of God. I want you to understand this very clearly. When I talk about Romans chapter 7 and I say this conflicted, torturous experience that Paul describes here is not what God wants for us, I'm not trying to say that everything's always going to go our way very easily. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, Jesus says, or John is writing, and I believe this is a message from Jesus to to us today. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. What is God's will for us? What does He want us? He wants us to gain victory over those things, right? He doesn't want us to continue doing those things we don't want to do, we don't intend to do, we know that are going to bring the fruit of death. These things I write unto you that, I, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Aren't you glad He put those two thoughts together? Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit didn't just say, I don't want you to sin? I would be discouraged. You know, there's a theology today in the world, in the Christian world, that says truth is determined by my experience. Have you ever heard of that type of thinking? I struggled with this. There was a time in my early ministry where I read the Bible and I looked at my life and I said, the Bible, what the Bible says and what my life is, don't match. And what I'm living is... It's easy for me to see that as more of a reality than what the Bible says. You know, I mean, it's very real. And I realized I had a choice to make. Either I could begin to define truth and conform truth to my experience, and therefore I'd feel better about myself. Or I had to say, maybe I need to live by faith, and maybe God's Word holds up a standard that I don't naturally reach. Are you with me on that? I think most Christians could agree that the the, the Word of God holds up a standard that I don't naturally, of my own self, reach. Then why do we try to redefine truth by our experience? It's a very dangerous, slippery slope to go down. It requires faith to believe that God can do the impossible. Did you catch that? It does not require faith for me to believe that I can do what I can do. I know I can do certain things. And if all my religion is, if all my religion consists of, if all my standard for living is, is the things that I can do by myself, what kind of a religion is that? It's a religion with no power no faith, no miracles, and that needs no God. It's a religion of me. No, God is asking us, as we look in the Word of God, as we see there's there's a standard that, that we can't reach. We've already failed. The law, perfectly obeying the law, is we've already blown it. All of sin had come short of the glory of God. But God is asking us to exercise faith, and that is to say, God, if it's in your Word and you want me to be that way... You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to work a miracle in my life. Oh, I tell you, friends, this is, where, this is where I've struggled in my own experience to come to an understanding of what God wants and how to share this message of what God wants. The good news is that God does not forsake us when we fail Him, but we need a miracle, and... The, Not only do we need a miracle, God promises a miracle. I love this. John chapter 3, that whole interchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. God promises a new birth. Well, I can't help it. I was born this way. That's why we need to be born again. We need to be born again from above, the power of the Spirit, being raised to walk in newness of life. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is promised to give us new life, a new spiritual life. If our religion consists of no power besides that which we possess in ourselves, it's a worthless religion. God promises a new birth. He promises a new heart. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. I love this. It's one of those those passages of the Old Testament that gives the gospel with clarity and it uses language that we can all understand and helps us understand Romans chapter 7 and 8 as, uh, as I'm sure Paul was familiar with it. I just love how, how it's all expressed here in, Romans, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. Notice the promise that God makes to His people. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you And you will be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. What is going to be the result of having a new heart, new birth, new covenant experience? Is it going to be that we can then sin as much as we want? Is that what happens after we're made clean? Notice what it says in verse verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you. Does that sound miraculous? Is the spirit able to do something that I can't do? Does the spirit have power that I don't have? Yes or no? Yes. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to do what? What? Walk in my statutes, you shall keep my judgments and do them. That's the good news. That's how the law of condemnation, the law of sin and death, becomes the law of freedom, the law of life in Christ Jesus, when the Spirit is put in us, when we are raised to walk in newness of life. That's the good news that God offers us. That's the good news that we can have. Notice with me, God offers a new birth. He offers a new heart. He promises a way of escape in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He promises that to us. He promises in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10 to write His law in our hearts, to Put that in our innermost parts. That's the promise of the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. It's repeated again in Hebrews chapter 10. Oh, my friends, God is not expecting us to live a life of obedience to the law in our own strength. He's expecting us simply to allow Him to put a new heart in us. We need a miracle. That's what we need. You see, my friends, when we think of the law... We could symbolize it by a chain. In fact, some of my pictures here I had I actually had a, a chain here in the corner, and, and we talked about freedom from the law and a, chin, a chain being broken. Well, I, I would suggest to you that sometimes we think of the law something like this. And I suppose that when we are in our unconverted state, when we are walking in the flesh, this is what God's law is. It condemns us. It binds us. We're held back by it. It's miserable. But do you know, did you ever stop to think that that same chain, that same chain that binds us, maybe that wasn't God's intention for it. Maybe God's intention for it was very, very different. That same chain, not appreciated by A prisoner in Guantanamo Bay, could be very, very much appreciated in a different context. Don't you think? That chain can be there to protect us, to keep us, to save us. I don't mean to save us from our sins, but to to show us the right way to go. Do you understand how the same law could be a law of sin and death, and at the same time, with the power of God in life, be the law of life in Christ Jesus? I believe it can be. God wants the law rather to be our delight. David said, I delight to do your will, O my God. Yea, your law is written in my heart. God wants His law to be our delight, something we appreciate, protection from the enemy, promises for the journey. And I hesitate even to share with you some ideas about how you can experience that law of life in Christ Jesus. Because ultimately, when we talk about victory over sin, when we talk about having freedom from guilt, freedom from the law, we're each on a spiritual journey, and only the Holy Spirit can, can teach you what it means for you. And I want to encourage each one of you, you know, We can go through life like Paul, miserable, or we can learn what the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is. And I want to encourage you, spend some quiet time with God. Don't depend upon the preacher to tell you what your soul needs. Jesus will speak to you. But I want to share with you some basic principles of how to be free from the law of condemnation. And experience the law of liberty, the law of life in Christ Jesus. Would you like to hear a couple ideas? The first one may surprise you, but I think it's by far the most important. The first step in experiencing freedom from the law is to stop trying. Now, that doesn't make sense at all. What do you mean, stop trying? I've been trying as hard as I can, and it hasn't been good enough. You should tell me how to try harder. You should tell me how to try smarter, something. My point is, brothers and sisters, friends of mine today, my point is this. As long as you're thinking it's something you can do to be better, to keep the law, to escape from condemnation, you'll never escape at all. As long as you think you can just try harder, you can get up earlier, you can pray more, you can study the Bible more, you can do all of these good things, as long as you think that those things are going to free you, you've got a problem. Because freedom does not begin until we give up. Do you understand what I'm saying? I have to come to the point where I say, I'm a pastor, I've been reading the Bible since I was a kid, I know God's Word, I know a lot of good things, a lot of theology, I've been to seminary, but none of it is any good, and nothing I do does any good, and no matter how hard I try, I can't. As long as you're still holding on to hope that you're good enough somehow that somehow you can, you, can, you can keep the law, you can obey Jesus, you can do whatever, as long as you're still holding on to any hope at all, you've not yet surrendered your life completely to Jesus. And you and I have to come to the point where we say, Jesus, I give up. In fact, I think we need to do that pretty often, because that old man keeps trying to come in and... And do it again. I give up. As, soon as, we, as long as we're trying to do it on our own strength, Jesus does not have the room to work in our lives. As long as we think we're going to try harder and do better, Jesus doesn't have the opportunity to do what He needs to do in our lives. Look with me in James chapter 4. I want to suggest that as we give up, it's not so that we give up hope. It's so that we have hope not in us, but we have hope in Jesus. Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what we read in Philippians chapter 1. Being confident in Jesus, not in me, not in Chester. Look with me, James chapter 4. What we must do in order to have the victory in our experience. James chapter 4 and verse 7 says... For, well, let's read 6 just for context. It's a beautiful verse. But he gives more grace. Does anyone here need more grace? I do. But he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Oh, I want to be in that latter category because I need more grace. God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Verse 7, for submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Does that mean a Christian should always be mourning and doping around, sad and mournful? No. Notice with me verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will what? He will lift you up. But at some point, friends, we've got to give up and realize our need and submit ourselves to Jesus, surrender our hearts to Jesus. Another thing that we can do to, to help Him make this victory in our lives is to spend time in God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 111 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119 is full of promises, about God's word and his commandments. I like the first few verses of that chapter. It says in verse nine, wherewithal, or how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to your word. You see, my friends, as we spend time in the Word of God, it's like Paul says the commandment is revived and we die. We see our need for Jesus. We see our need for His salvation. You see, in my own experience, i found found it's very easy for me, especially if I'm not spending time daily in the Word of God, it's very easy for me to begin go, go, going through my life on sort of cruise control. You know what I'm talking about? Everything's going okay. There's not anything terrible happening in my life. I'm okay. I mean, after all, look around me. There are people who claim they're Christians who do worse things than me. So I'm actually okay after all. And I become self-satisfied and complacent and think that, again, think that I can do it. It's when I spend time in God's Word that I'm reminded that standard is super high. I need grace. I need Jesus. I can't do it. Oh, that's what I need on a daily basis, spending time in God's Word. And for some people, you know it's different. For some people... The morning is easier sometimes. It may be evening is easier. But we all need to spend time in the Word of God. Spend time in self-examination. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. And I'm going to paraphrase the rest of the verse. It says either Jesus Christ is in you, or you are a reprobate or a a depraved, corrupt person. You, You can't be... You can't be in the middle ground. It's either a miracles happen in your life today or you're, I'm lost. Right? Either Jesus is living in my heart today or, or He's not. It's not a really complex thing. It's, it's either or. It's one or the other. The last point that I want to make is to focus on Jesus not on the sin. I've met some people who taught a doctrine of victory over sin who focused primarily on the sin, maybe on the victory. But it was all looking at myself and still trying to find how I could find victory over that struggle that I've been having. And I believe the secret at least what I've experienced in my own life, my secret is not to focus on my struggle. The focus should be on Jesus. The focus should be on the one who is able to change my heart. Because I can't change myself, right? A leopard can't change his spots. A can't change his skin. Neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil become accustomed to doing good. I can't change my heart but I know someone who can. Jesus can change my heart. It takes a miracle, and as I focus my mind on Jesus, as I focus my eyes on Jesus, as I spend time believing Him, believing His Word, and trying to stay in an unbroken relationship with Him, allowing Him to have room in my heart, that is when He can give me the victory. That is when He can write His law in my heart, and that Law becomes a law of spirit of life instead of a law of sin and death. And after we've done these five steps, (laughs) what do we do? We keep doing them. This is a daily experience. Basic, basic understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus, to walk with Him by faith. And I am thankful that as we look to Jesus I'm thankful as we look to Jesus, we see a Savior who is a greater Savior than I am a sinner. I'm thankful that His grace is greater than my sin, my guilt. I'm thankful that His power is greater than my weakness. His strength is stronger than my habits. His strength is sufficient. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Don't you love that? Don't you love our Jesus? He says, you don't have to be a strong Christian. You need to be a weak Christian for my strength to be in you. Because only when you realize your weakness can my strength have any good effect. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, I will rather glory glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Philippians 4, verse 13 says, I can do all things. How many things? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jude, verse 24 and 25. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. First John 4 and verse 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Can you say amen? amen. Jesus has the power that we don't have. He has the grace and the strength that we don't have. Ephesians 3, verses 19 through 21, And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God, now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, Amen. And to him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think. Oh, my friends, don't limit my Jesus. The Son shall make you free. You shall be free indeed. Oh, I want that, don't you? I want an experience of freedom from the law. When that law is written in my heart, it will no longer be a shackle that binds me, but a guide rail to strengthen me, to guide me. That is a miracle only Jesus can work, and I want that miracle in my heart today. How about you? Anyone here want to join me in saying, Jesus... I've, I've, my life's too much like the Apostle Paul's when he described not doing what he wanted to do and doing what he didn't want to do. I want a life free from the condemnation of the law. I want your law to be written in my heart. Is that your desire today? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, today we just thank you that we can come to you just as we are. We don't have to make ourselves out to be something we're not. We don't have to pretty ourselves up before we come to your throne. We're thankful that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That each of us, no matter what our background, no matter what our condition, position today, we're all in the same condition when we kneel at your cross. We're thankful, Lord, that your grace is sufficient for our weakness. That your strength is made perfect in our weakness. That if we think we're strong, you can't give us your strength. But when we realize we're weak, that's when you can do something for us. Oh, Lord, I pray. I pray today that we might all just give up. Give up trying to do it on our own. That we might admit defeat. That we might recognize that only a miracle can save us. And that miracle is to be found in Jesus. Today, Father, you know each heart. You see each one here. Perhaps there's someone struggling with that choice to surrender and submit their life to you, to your word. I just want to pray that you'll give them the victory, that your spirit will give them power to rise and walk in newness of life, that the old man, the way we naturally are and do and be, that can be dead and gone, buried, so we can be married to you. That we can walk with you and you in us and us in you and and we can be new creatures in Christ Jesus. Lord, this is our, our prayer. We want this experience. We want it now, today. We want it tomorrow. We want it moment by moment. Not because we're worthy, Lord. Not because we deserve it. But just because of your grace, we claim this promise. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.